Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I've got another live show for you today. I've gotten some great feedback on the past couple I've put out. So while I finish up the big solo show I'm working on about how to raise money in Japan, I thought I would bring you another live show today. But this one is a bit different. Last week, at the B-Trax Design for Innovation Conference, I was part of a panel where we talked about the challenges a lot of large companies face in driving innovation internally. I talk about some of the specifics from my work at TEPCO, and my fellow panelists share their experience running innovation labs for Japanese enterprises. And I'm sure you won't be too surprised to learn that Japanese companies are pretty bad at innovating this way, at least so far. Progress is being made, and most have good intentions, of course, but almost all of them are making the same core mistakes in their innovation programs. We'll go over a few of the big ones in our conversation, and in my comments at the end of the show, I'll give you my closing thoughts on the problem with what I call the innovation market. But for now, let's get right to the discussion. So let's see, uh, the topic, Inhibition Lab. So sounds really Silicon Valley, isn't it? So I'd like to start by um, getting a poll from the audience about Silicon Valley. So um, how many of you guys have visited Silicon Valley in the past? But few, one third, maybe? Uh, I think there are more than, <laughs> it's okay. Um, so the reason why I asked is, um, um, I live in San Francisco and I see many Japanese companies visit Silicon Valley uh, looking for the, some ideas or methods for innovation. And I feel like uh, every single week there's some one company visiting from Japan uh, trying to find some ideas. However, I feel like um, result-wise and output-wise, I haven't seen uh, clear results, at least. So um, I'd like to open up discussion here to ask your opinions about um, what we the some of the uh, challenges that Japanese companies are facing uh, when it comes to creating innovation, even though they do come to Silicon Valley very often. What's, what's wrong with it? What's, what, what do they need to do differently? Anybody? JB, go ahead. Well, um, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm JB. I'm Jensen Barnes um, from California. Lived in Japan for six years. Um, uh, basically opened a, well, co-founded the Innovation Lab here in Japan. Um, been active in many institutions and I kind of brand myself as doing new things, always doing new. <laughs> so um, I think the, the issue I see in this in California is Japanese, Japanese companies coming but then not really setting um, what Tim has and both Ian and I we've talked about is like setting objectives, setting the right objectives and coming for the right reasons. Um, as, a, as someone who opened up a lab here too, it's, it's sort of a trophy. 
um, to have a, a, a innovation system or innovation process within the company. And I think there's a lot of mid-sized companies that could really, you know, use a great, great innovation lab to prop up the brand of uh, the institution and and the employees um, without hiring, you know, expert, um, maybe Toyota, some, you know, today we heard about Yamaha, Toyota, you know, I mean, Honda rather. And, um, you know, without hiring, you know, expert uh, researchers or engineers, um, transforming their own people um, more into um, innovation experts. So how about the, uh, from the viewpoint of expert at Tefco Ventures, yourself, Tim? Um, okay, I guess should, I should introduce myself a bit. I, I'm, uh, my name's Tim Romero. I'm CTO of Tefco Ventures, where we work with both Japanese startups and foreign energy startups to develop new business models in energy here in Japan. Uh, before I joined TEPCO, uh, I've started four startups here in Japan over the last 25 years. Uh, sold to, bankrupted to, so 50-50. That's not bad as far as startups go. Yeah, not, you know. <laughs> I also work with some other large Japanese companies on their startup outreach and innovation programs, uh, but I'm probably best known for a podcast I run called Disrupting Japan, where we sit down and we talk with Japanese startup founders about not so much their specific company, but what it's like to sell to big enterprises as a tiny startup, uh, how they manage to convince their wife to let them li- leave Mitsui and start this crazy you know, side project, just what it's like to be an innovator in a country like Japan that prizes conformity. Um, To answer the question, I I, I think the single biggest mistake that large Japanese enterprises make when creating an innovation program, it's it's a lack of a specific goal. So innovation is not a goal. It is a means to an end. So when a company says they want innovation, they're, they're still a little bit confused. So do you want to create new business models within your existing industry? Do you want to create new products that can be sold to consumers? Do you want to uh, streamline existing businesses taking technology and best practices from other companies? So all of those are reasonable and achievable goals. But the single biggest mistake I see most companies make is saying, well, go outside and find some of this innovation and bring it back. And that, that doesn't work, because innovation is a, it's a process. It's not the goal. So speaking of the goals, um, how to measure innovations? Maybe Ian can start, introduce yourself, and you can add some of the ideas or... Happy to. Hello, yeah, go good ahead. afternoon. My name is Jan. I'm general manager for Frog. Frog is a global um, design and strategy consultancy. We've just celebrated our 50th anniversary and are in our third year um, partnership together with Dentsu to help Japanese companies grow, basically, and stay relevant in the future by designing experiences that people love. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, I, I agree with what everybody else has said, innovation is, is complex and is not anything magical. It requires a lot of planning. Um, before answering the question how to measure innovation, if you don't have objectives, if you don't have an innovation strategy, if you don't have uh, an, 
a plan to actually see how whatever comes out of your innovation activities will be embedded into the organization, you are going to fail or you're going to shut it down, which is not obviously the purpose of making investments. Um, innovation should never be measured by return on investment in day one, year one. Uh, it should always be a long-term thing. If you look at the horizons that McKinsey basically um, works around, horizon one, two, and three, horizon one is the known, horizon two is the partially known, and horizon three is the unknown. Whilst innovation can influence all the three horizons, the one you should be focusing on is the third one, the one that is furthest away. So it's five years plus. Anything else that you expect from innovation coming to the business sooner is going to be a failure. So what do you think, like, the, the last session I had, uh, Nick with Honda says their measurement is number of wows or the volume of that, uh, magnitude of the, the wows that they get from the audience. Is that a good measurement for innovative ideas at least? Well, like I think Tim and, and Ian, it, you know, the, comp in, the system that you have within the company and how you measure it, um, I think is just very important. Um, if the company uses OKRs, which I, I, you know, measuring what matters, I don't know if you know this, this book, Measuring Which Matters Most. It's one of the you know, prime books of how to structure um, uh, objectives within your company. Um, and I'm sure they do, many companies do. But somehow I think innovation teams are just exempt. Uh, a lot of teams just simply don't do them because of this worry of, of watching them. And I, I differ a little bit from the, the KPI. I think all innovation teams should have KPIs and I think they should be carefully watched. I don't think it should just be this kind of, you know, open-ended uh, thing that we don't watch. I mean, it's like this, it's like a seed. I mean, it's like if you, you wouldn't just plant the seeds and run away and not, you know, <laughs> and just like, oh, just grow somehow. <laughs> I think this is like really important that you 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 care you nurture nurture this thing, uh, but you um, like all all controlling things. You can't just obsess and control it and, and, and stifle it by. Um, uh, shutting it down, for example, I think. I think that's what you're getting to, maybe, Ian. It's just like, you know. So at Tepco Ventures, uh, do you guys have any KPIs or goals set? We do. Um, and again, it depends on the team. So we have a CVC team, and we've got several different project teams. And I, I think the, I mean, KPIs are essential, and it's important to set them in line with whatever your goals are. So if the goal is new business creation, the KPIs should be centered around, um, you know, creating the first, first few ren, yen in external revenue. Not the total amount, but creating a new business model that does generate revenue. If the, the, the program is focused more on using new technology to improve efficiencies, those KPIs should be centered around internal adoption of the new technologies. Did you, did you learn those things through... Um working as an entrepreneur? How did you get those ideas? Uh, yeah, it has mostly been, it's mostly been working as an entrepreneur, but also within TEPCO. So I, startups and innovation labs are fundamentally different creatures than uh, enterprises. Yeah. Uh, enterprises exist to optimize and execute an existing and known business model, where startups and innovation labs are searching for new business models. It's, it's unknown. So a lot of it is taking things from my, my startup days and trying to make it work in a large organization to kind of align those KPIs with the rest of the organization's KPIs. It's not always easy. 
but you got to do it. Okay. Uh, from Ian's point of view, what's what's the uh, values of external agencies um, working with your clients to help them innovate more? Why don't they do everything in-house first? It just really depends on how how well set up the client is. There are clients who don't need our help, and that's perfectly fine. They can they can do everything on the, on their own. Um, and there are clients who have um, a less you know a lower educational level or are not are inexperienced. Um, they could obviously ask an entrepreneur to come and help them. They can ask a consultancy to come and help them. And then it depends in what stage they are at. So we can help them in all the process in the entire roadmap, or we can just basically be picked to help them in one where they have encountered issues and problems. I do feel uh, Japan specifically, um, external agencies such as Dentsu is uh, quite beneficial because many companies uh, do look for what, whatever called um, external pressure meaning advice or suggestions or even ideas from external quote-unquote experts so that some people in those companies do not have to worry taking responsibilities <laughs> on the results because they can say, well, I didn't like it, but Dentsu did it. I think that's something that doesn't only count for Japan. You can get right. McKinsey in, in any company of this world and you will not get fired. Maybe because it's too expensive, but not for bringing in the wrong consultant. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, I think that's why all of the world's consulting companies now are doing innovation consulting, PwC and McKinsey and, and um, uh, Accenture, because it's an easy product to sell. Um, that, that said, these companies aren't necessarily that good at innovation themselves. And, and I do think that there, there's two advantages to having someone from outside, whether it's an individual or whether it's an outside agency. And one is what you mentioned is someone coming from outside and talking about innovation can speak more credibly about it than someone who's come up within the organization. Um, but the other thing is that at, at any large organization, basically everybody's job, no matter what their job title is, everyone's job is to get their boss's approval. And it is incredibly hard to be innovative and to do something where if your boss agrees it's innovative, then maybe you can do it. But his boss has to agree too. And making more than one jump makes it almost impossible. So bringing in people from outside, whether it's individuals or agencies, will bring in that perspective, will kind of enable people to jump hierarchies. And that is incredibly important in actually getting companies to roll out innovative new ideas. I guess, JB, can speak from your own experience about um, having Innovation Lab as a separate organization, um, separate from the headquarters uh, main business unit. What would be the, some of the benefits of doing that? Well, you still, it's the communication gap. I mean, it's, it's a way of it's still connected. <laughs> like, I think uh, all good innovation labs, even though they remain uh, separate, they should be connected to the values of what you're trying to do um, and the values of the institution. So this is where I also feel like there's a slight gap with um, sometimes wanting to do this thing called innovation and then not basically forgetting about what the original company even stood for or what the people stand for, which is uh, something else maybe we should talk about, but it's 
I, th I think this is, we're talking about people. I mean, people are, are, are building this new stuff somehow, and then you have other people managing them. <laughs> like, like uh, and if the managers don't follow <laughs> like the values of the company, you're, you're in big trouble, <laughs> I think. Um, the biggest reason I believe personally of having, a, uh, having the innovation lab um, outside of the headquarters is uh, that particular organization could be outside of their whatever called um, corporate rules. And the rules at, and guidelines maybe at Japanese corporations are so strict. Talking about security, talking about the online tools they could use, Absolutely. the uh, evaluation process, approval process, slow and steady, which is, which is good, which is good for their main business models. But when it comes to creating something very quickly, very fast, um, battling with startups, those are a huge, huge handicap for those uh, activities, um, innovation activities. If they cannot use any cloud software, your hands are tied. It's almost impossible to win the game without having your hands to punch the opponent if you're playing, the bo playing uh, boxing, for example. I, I think there's there's two parts to corporate innovation. And the creation, the actual innovation part, I think you're absolutely right. Trying to do it inside the company is incredibly challenging. Creating a special unit where uh, the rules can be relaxed and people are free to experiment more is really useful. But the other half of that is taking that innovation and then getting adoption back in the company proper. And so I always... I mean, I joke, but it's, it's kind of true. My, my title is CTO, but 80% of my job is sales. And it's inward-facing sales. It, it's getting getting buy-ins from, yeah, okay. from, from different divisions, going to people, saying, no, 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 here's why this is important to you. Here's why this, this crazy idea can help your unit and why you should adopt it. And the risk of having a separate unit, um, if it's too isolated is that a lot of times you, you don't have that function where you're, you're going back into the organization and, and selling it and getting buy-in. Um, maybe Ian can talk about this. So what would be some of the uh, real examples from Western companies um, succeeding innovation lab activities? What would be some of the factors for them? Because I get a lot of people asking me, like, how do they do it um, in the U.S. or Europe? or other countries? So I think if you look at 90% um, of the innovation labs failing or being closed, there's not much good to look at. Um, and that's, that's good to that's, know. That's, that's really good to know, actually. Um, but the, the majority of the ones that are successful have a healthy distance to the head office, but are not too far away to be forgotten and actually to still influence. What Tim just said is really important. Um, and they have a high-profile executive who normally leads the innovation lab. If it's somebody that is just basically running around for the last couple of years of his, of his uh, tenure in the company, or he's been, he's been punished and that's why he's been sent to an innovation lab, those things don't help. Um, a high-profit executive will know exactly how to navigate the waters of, a, of the organization. Um, he, will, he, will be, um, you know, he will have an open year with the CEO. They will have an innovation strategy that he knows exactly how to follow. Maybe he's defined it himself. He will have an operating model of actually how the lab should be functioning. And uh, what, is, what is really important about the fact that he goes back to the head office is that he will get the required funding for the different stages. Um, we had an, an example that I can talk about without naming the client. is an automotive company in Japan that we worked for. 
and uh, we, we worked together with a rebel within the organization that was known to be difficult. Um, but we were quite happy that he was on our side because we had to design a car, but we had to do it the other way around. Instead of doing it from the outside and the engine inwards, this year was a car that was based on experience and technology and had to be done from the inside to the outside. Now, if you look at how conservative organizations are and how they normally would tackle that problem, if you're not a rebel, if you don't have your own way of thinking, you will struggle and eventually you will fail. Because he was one of these high-profile executives that knew how to navigate the water secretly the other way around, and he was successful. What was, what's the definition of fail here? Fail would basically mean um, another anecdote that I can say is a pharmaceutical company that opens an innovation lab, works with us together, and the moment we have the first product that could actually be decided, it's a you know do it or don't do it. Um, finance looks at the profit margins they will achieve; they are far lower than pharmaceuticals. All right, let's forget it. That is failure. It's failure for the organization. They have spent a lot of money. They've basically burned talent to do something that at day one could have almost been decided we're not going to do because it's not as profitable as we would expect it to be. And that's the reason why the corporate distance is critical for you to do what is good, but on the other hand is uh, to your detriment if you're forgotten because then you come back and you say, here, take this. What is it? It's amazing. How much money can we make? Not enough? Goodbye. And that frustrates people. Um, let's talk about human factors here. Um, I always wonder if you can teach somebody how to be an innovator. Is it really possible? Is it like a natural-born talent? Or is there ways? Or maybe there are some people with hidden talents within them, but they don't realize themselves, maybe. How, how do we do that? My thinking on this has changed over the years. Um, I, I used to think creativity or innovation was more of a uh, personality thing, um, but I, I've changed my mind totally. I think innovation is a skill. It can be learned by anybody, but it, it's a skill kind of like, let's say, basketball is a skill. A anybody can learn it, but some people are going to be better at it than others. There's going to be a range of abilities, but it's not a mysterious thing. There, there's processes and there's... It, it's something that anyone can learn to do and should. I think we're living in the age of the non-individual, <laughs> like the teams, like building a team and working together. Um, if you just look at decentralized, the way people hire, um, it's becoming more and more this way. Um, it's more essential that you can build a team with the same, with a good mix of values and um, just a good mix of ethics. Um, I, and I think that's where I would say the human factor is like most important. Um, and I've seen, I mean, I've been a part of, the hiring is the part of the innovation. It starts with that. Um, and it, it can end with that too. <laughs> I just realized just now that, so we, we keep talking about innovation lab activities. Um, when you think about Google, for example, they have something called 20% rule. You can do something totally different from what you are doing as a main, main role. Do you guys believe in this, the 20%? I, I would probably believe in it. It depends what the objective is. I would say Google can probably afford to have a 20% rule in order to retain talent. Talent gets to do cool things, to tinker, to do whatever their passion is about, and it doesn't then so much matter if it actually is turned into a Google product, but Google might just spin it off. But, so it depends on the strategy you have. And there, there are Japanese companies doing the 20% rule, um, I had uh, the founder of Preferred Networks on the show, and they, they have a 20% rule, and they've released several products 
that have come out of it. So it is, it's doable. It's a big commitment for the company. It, it's very hard to keep managers in line in the sense that, uh, in, ensure that managers allow employees to do that 20%. That's the biggest challenge within the companies. But the structure itself is, is workable both for U.S. companies like Google and Japanese companies like Preferred Networks if they really make the commitment. I think it's where it's controversial, though, is that it's, I always hear 20%, but it's not connected to something bigger. <laughs> it's like this thing that, oh, yeah, the, the employees have to work 20% to get some kind of you know, interesting prize and because they want to optimize some internal process within the company, but it's not connected to a hu- bigger... Um, strategy around innovation um, in the values of the company. And that's where I think and, it's... And like, you're right. In that case, you should question why there's the 20% rule. So they they do claim that they got Gmail out of that 20% rule. Is yes. that true? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that's a true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the other thing is I think that a lot of, especially younger employees, younger programmers are very surprised by the 20% rule because most of that 20% does not result in a new product. It does not result in, in big changes. Um, and it, it, the ones that succeed are employees that kind of develop an ability to pull together a team on their own without formal authority. So it, it is a way of kind of training employees, allowing avenues for innovation to open up. But like I said, I mean, I, I think it's a great idea, but it is a huge commitment for, for a company to make. In, in Japan's case, I've seen uh, multiple companies doing 20% rule on top of 100% of what they've been doing. Right, the, the 120% rule, right? You can do whatever you want to do, 20%, on top of working 100%. How, how many is that? Uh, how many out there have a hot, like a 120% thing, like Brandon's talking about? So 20% like above. doing something innovative, uh, innov- innovative activities, however, you need to keep doing whatever you've been doing as a main business activities. There's Can anyone admit? <laughs> yeah, Maybe they're not allowed to say that. That's where it's really important to make sure from the top down that the managers are... Yeah, you have to put pressure on the managers to allow it because you know they're being judged on their sales quota for this this quarter or you know shipping the product by this time. So their incentives are not aligned to allow the twenty percent. So it it really it's that is a big shift in corporate culture. Yeah, otherwise you end up with like you say the hundred and twenty percent rule. Specifically, JB keeps saying that hiring is very important. Uh, make sure to hire innovators. I think um, many Japanese companies, large corporations, hire people who, who follow rules, very stable um, process, and they're salary men. Could they become innovators? Is it, is, how, 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 could, how could a company can... How, how could they transform somebody from salaryman to innovator? So I, I believe in the long-term game on here. Like this right. is, uh, I, I do, I have hope that the long-term game can win because I think I, I see so much potential in the, in the power of the Japanese team. Like setting up each other for success, that term even, that's in, currently being used in 
I'm the head of software at Off The Grid, and it's a thriving, doubling company year, on year, year over year. And we use this primarily because we're inspired by how Japanese teams work. And I, I just think there's so much potential in how the, the connections that are already in the value systems here. Um, but yes, I, I, I think uh, you know, um, following each other is not something you want either. And uh, you really need... You really need these tools within the company then to suggest maybe 20% or other strategies to... What would be some of those tools? I'd like to know some of the uh, tools you could use to be more innovative. Well, I, I think one is what we already have discussed is bringing in third-party people. I mean, I think that's a, tr a tremendous um, um, you know, benefit for the, the labs or, or even the people within the company. I think taking a hard look at the... The whatever is called HR in Japan, which is still called HR, but the experience of the employees. Like, what is their, how are they representing the values of the institution through actions and behaviors every day? If it's, it's just showing up, just doing your job, that's not actually building something progressive for the future. It's just maintaining the business itself. So, I do believe the um, Tim really admires Japanese work ethic or teamwork. What are some of the great things about Japan comparing to maybe other countries, United States? Uh, I'd say, I don't know, I think Japan more than anywhere else has, has this uh, commitment to excellence, to doing something absolutely right. And that, that can kind of backfire in the early stage where Japanese, uh, particularly engineers, will try to get something just perfect before they ship it. But as a company grows, as they hit that kind of uh, mid-level, that scale-up, or certainly mass market, um, this commitment to their customers and to this perfection, uh, I, don't, I don't think there's anything quite like it anywhere else in the world. You know, Germany comes close, but not, not really. How about the level of customer support and services in general? I, I think that's, yeah, that, that I, I think those two things are very tied into each other. Um, it, it is, Japanese customers expect things to be, you know, have that near perfection. But, but I've noticed something different happening with, uh, say, crowdfunded and some startups. Uh, Japanese consumers are being a lot more tolerant of projects that were crowdfunded. So they, will, they have lower expectations for something they bought from Maku, off of Makuake or Kibidango than something they ordered from you know, a product produced by Panasonic, say. Um, and, and that is why it's really tough for large brand, brands to create something new. I, I think it is. And because, well, I think Sony has a very interesting case study and in innovation here. So Sony engineers started um, not using the Sony brand. And I, I think if you want to be innovative and want to take chances, you cannot use the major brand. You've got to create some sub-brand. Um, otherwise, you'll never be able to make any kind of an announcement or website or anything. But um, Sony, for example had different engineering teams doing really creative things and going out and crowdfunding it themselves and um, they weren't using the Sony brand so they were creating their own brands and I think the danger there is that uh, I, 
if they haven't yet, some of these engineering teams are going to wake up and say, wait, why, why do we need Sony? We, we can go out and get capital on our own, and we've got the customers. But I, I think um, the basic plan is, is right on that. You, you give people the freedom to access knowledge and know-how within the organization, but you don't let them run with the brand. You let them create something on their own and see how it goes. Ian, have you had any experience doing some like a stealth mode projects or not using clients' brands but releasing some products out there? Um, we did with probably, Zinsu, by the way, in the past. Congrats. Probably not really. So most of the things that we have done with clients are actually in stealth mode within the organization. So we have had projects that were, you know, executives were given a budget and they were told, go away and come back when you have something. And that was actually to avoid the typical disruption you have in, in large organizations where people are, politics are going to play a role, um, you know, fear of um, cannibalizing their current products is going to play a major role in terms of avoiding the success of this venture, basically. Um, so that, it, there we have a lot of experience, yes. But in terms of running out products that are not attached to the brand, no, we haven't. All right. Let's start talking about something actionable here. Uh, so we still have seven minutes or so. Uh, so some, what would be some of the first things that uh, we should start doing to be more innovative as a, as a company? Can I, can I suggest one thing that nobody should do? Don't think about the space. It doesn't, <laughs> oh. really, it doesn't really matter. Every startup Renting a garage. Renting a space at WeWork. <laughs> well, wherever it is, don't stop, fell, fall into the pitfall of saying we need a big space, it needs this, it needs that. All of a sudden, 20 million yen are you know, pumped into something. Ian, what about like, you know, being in the neighborhood of awesome startups? Totally fine. As long as you don't pay 200 million yen. What I just mean is many companies, I agree, you should be in a neighborhood that is you know, engaging, successful. creative, successful, that you know, will rub off on you. But don't worry so much about the space you have, which is what many companies do. It's like having a computer with outdated software. Do it the how, other way around. How about snacks and free food? <laughs> we can talk about that. <laughs> But, but so seriously, um, talent is really important. We at Frog would believe that you don't need a good idea, you need the right people. So you need the right team to actually bring any idea forward and that's where capital will be invested in. It's not so much the idea. And then obviously a strategy needs to follow, like I said, an operating model and a framework. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with that. I think there's much more time needs to be spent on how to design the best team. How to design, like, it's, you're, you're building a baseball team. You're building a soccer team. You're, you're building an innovation team. And that, that, the same things play, but I never see any kind of, like, I haven't seen that. I just don't see that. Fundamentally speaking, many Japanese companies have um, HR system um, that most people in the company have very least control on. Meaning, like, they assign people HR department decides, or corporate executives, business division decides those. So it's really hard to design the best team by yourself. Well, I think it's, it's trying to design the best team is already starting to make a mistake. So I, I think that, so I, I don't know all of the companies that you work for, but I, I guarantee you that wherever you're working, there's already enough innovators inside your company um, even if you look at places like San Francisco, 
which everyone holds up as the center of innovation for the whole world. Less than 1%, less than half a percent of the people in San Francisco are actually doing anything innovative. Most of them are driving cabs and teaching <laughs> school and, and keeping the lights on. And, and it's in the same with any big company. You, you don't need to change the corporate culture. What San Francisco is really, really good at, though, is connecting those 0.5% to each other and letting innovators talk to each other. And so if you look at successful Japanese companies that, that do innovate internally, there's, there's two categories. There's companies like uh, DMP and SoftBank and DMM that, that have CEOs that relentlessly advocate the importance of innovation. They have programs dedicated to connecting these teams. And there's companies that kind of have to do it by stealth. Um, in, in TEPCO, we've created this uh, project called Green Tech Labs, where it's uh, energy and startups. And what we've noticed is that a lot of people from TEPCO are kind of coming on the weekends in their own time. Um, and some of them, their boss knows they're doing it. And a couple of them have told me, you know, don't let my boss, don't tell anyone I came here. But you need the, the ability to connect the innovators within the organization. How, how is it important? How much is it important to have a diverse team? Team with diversity. I, th I think that's incredibly important. I think the more diversity you have in a team, the more different insights you will get. Um, when I look at the designers we would employ at Frog, um, I'm probably one of the examples, not the best designer, but I'm a banker and I turned designer. We have anthropologists, psychologists. So the, the more flavors you can get into the mix, the better probably the outputs are going to be. Well, I just say gender. I mean, like, I, I, having lived in Japan, I feel there's such an a, a imbalance Seriously. in the teams. Yeah, we had a Halloween party last week. I did a makeup on them. In the face, I finally realized how they feel about doing makeups and stuff. I mean, it's it's really important to have diverse team with empathy there. Well, I think and the balance. No, I agree completely. A diverse team is incredibly important, but the the balance to that, the more diverse the team is, the stronger you have to communicate the vision, and the stronger, the more effort it takes to keep everyone focused on the same goal. Um. And so the, the flip side of that is if you take uh, a lot of people from a, a traditional organization uh, and you say, okay, now you're going to innovate, there's no diversity, but they're, they're very focused on the same goal, but they won't achieve it. And if you take an incredibly diverse team, you might get a lot of creativity, but without that vision, without someone like really directing it, you also won't get a, an end result. So you need a, a balance of those two. What are the other things that we could, we could do at the Japanese companies? I, I'd say talk to startups. Um, oh, that's, that's crucial. Yeah, but no, no, I mean, it's, people... It's incredible that it's, corporate people do not talk to startups. No, people. and it's not hard. There was um, a totally different division, but within TEPCO, they were, someone had proposed that they sponsor this startup program, and it was going to cost, like... Uh, Senman in to sponsor it and there were all these advantages and at the end it was like well what do you want out of this? It's like well we want to be able to talk with the startups and then you know hear about them. It's like well then just, just go to the demo day. You know go to the last day and talk to the startups for free. 
You know, it's like you're, you're typical for God's sake. Any, yeah. any startup that is remotely interested in energy wants to talk to you. And that's the, that's the, Cal- that's the California, if we talk, get back to the sort of title maybe, that's the spirit of what exists there. If there's a culture you want to transplant, that's it. It's the sharing, it's the making connections with each other, as, as Tim was saying. I thought of the company, I thought of organization. It doesn't it, really matter. It's not based on money or monetary benefit or each other or how high you're going to climb. It's just you want to share and you're excited about your area. Yeah. If you go up to any startup founder, uh, particularly early stage, and say, so what is it you do? They will tell you. You will have a half-hour conversation whether you want to or not. It's, you know... It's very easy to talk to, to startups. So that's exactly why we designed, B-Tracks designed this event this year, to have you guys, startup people, corporate people, some eccentric people coming up next to make it more diverse so that maybe audience can feel the innovation. That's the whole topic of that. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And we're back. I'd like to add a bit to my thoughts from the program. And now that I think about it, I might do a whole episode on corporate innovation in the future. But I'm, I'm constantly baffled by large Japanese companies who open up an office in San Francisco, post staff there for a few years, and expect that they will, I don't know, somehow become innovative by osmosis and then bring that innovation back to headquarters. As I said at the top of the show, innovation's a tool. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. But something interesting has happened over the past decade. Innovation has become trendy and fashionable, and big companies want some of it although they're not sure exactly what it is. And thus, the enterprise innovation market was born. And so, innovation, which really should form the bedrock of any company's long-term strategy, is being packaged up and sold like, like all the other business management fads, like Six Sigma or MBOs and process reengineering. The problem is that meaningful innovation is inherently risky. Not only can you not predict if innovation will succeed, but you can't even really predict how it will look if it does succeed. Successful innovation could upend the power structure of the whole company in unpredictable ways. And that's not something you're going to get management to sign off on in corporate Japan or in corporate America, for that matter. So innovation gets repackaged and de-risked to make it more palatable to those who, frankly, don't really want to innovate, but have budget that has been allocated to spend on innovation. So instead of connecting and empowering the innovators they already have, they turn to consultants, who in turn turn the conversation to co-working spaces and unlimited snacks and design thinking classes and innovation training. And, yeah, all those things are great. I mean, what's not to love about design thinking and free snacks? But innovation is not the goal. 
innovation is a tool, and it's a dangerous one. It can't really be made safe. It can't be de-risked. But also, in the long run, it can't be stopped. It can't be held back. In fact, almost all economic progress in the last 260 years has been driven by innovation. And the companies that are too timid to open themselves up and embrace innovation are going to lose out to the ones who do. If you want to talk more about corporate innovation or innovation in general, come by DisruptingJapan.com and let me know what you think. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you I'll respond. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.